right now on Matter of Fact. Yeah. My daughter is bilaterally blind. She is developmentally delayed. She has epilepsy. A mother's heartbreaking struggle to teach her disabled daughter at home. She's one of the millions of parents fighting to make sure her child isn't left behind. Many people have called this the lost year. We explore what it takes to regain what's lost. Then... We either had to sell the house or we had to elevate the house. Families desperate to save their homes from being washed away. The big idea America's coastal cities hope will combat climate change. Plus, how do you create upward mobility for people just getting by? You will see a hydraulic track, a rock climbing wall. They don't need a, uh, a track facility. They need their house repaired. And how strangers could find out your COVID-19 test results. I'm Soledad O'Brien, welcome to Matter of Fact. Nine months into the COVID-19 shutdown, schools across the country remain a patchwork of in-person, remote, and hybrid teaching models. Parents filling the roles of teachers are stretched thin. Education experts say in-person instruction is a critical part of child development and even more important for children with complex disabilities. In the current environment, schools are struggling to meet the legal requirements that guarantee services to special needs students. For their parents, a return to school would provide significant relief, but many find themselves weighing the risks versus the benefits. Yes, yes, Henry planted crops. My name is Shanice Nicole Lyons-Linares, and my daughter is Victoria Nicole Lyons, and she's 11 years old. My daughter is bilaterally blind. She is developmentally delayed. She has epilepsy. She's 11 years old, but she's only on the level of a 10-month-old. So she's nonverbal, and she requires 24-hour care. Prior to the pandemic, she would wake up in the morning about 6 a.m. and she would get on the bus between 6.30 and 6.45 to head to the Bronx to Lavelle School for the Blind. She would have occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy in combination with feeding therapy. She would also have musical therapy, adaptive PE, which is adaptive physical education. Now things are definitely different. She now has all of those things, but it's in combination with mom and an iPad. <laughs> in the beginning, it was hard because I was working remotely and doing the schooling remotely. You have to be sitting with her for every single lesson. You have to do hands-on with her every single lesson. So that was overwhelming. It was extremely overwhelming. But then I went to become furloughed, receiving unemployment, which is not even close to what I was making at work, and now I'm doing the remote learning fully, and it made me much happier to know that my daughter is safe, but I'm still struggling financially. So it's like a catch-22. There are some parents who have to go to work. There are some parents who were not furloughed, and they need to send their kid to school. So I understand the necessity, but it's a big risk because these same children don't have the same immune system as everybody else. They have so many more challenges, and if they do get sick, they may not make it out of it. 
relax. It was very disheartening in the beginning, but at the end of the day, I pray on it, and I know that things will work out. Dr. Matthew Bloomstead is a national advocate for special needs education. He is the Nebraska Commissioner of Education and the president of the Council of Chief State School Officers. So nice to have you, sir. Thanks for talking with me. Many people have called this the lost year for students overall, but I think maybe particularly for kids who uh, have special needs. What exactly literally is being lost, do you think? For me, it's really the opportunity that's lost and that time in school and that that time with, uh, uh, you know, even other students is is the challenge that we're going to have to overcome. Hopefully, as we enter the spring and use the summer to really be able to uh, compensate for the lost the lost opportunities for our students. The law requires, as you well know, that that students in public schools, that their needs be met. Is it even feasible, really? because a lot of the parents I talk to feel like their kid is just not being educated and certainly not to the level they're supposed to be. In special ed law, there's compensatory education. So the, the opportunities that are lost for all students also have to be regained in some fashion for, for special ed students. And, and, and some of those things are lost in, in part just because the uh, our students with special needs need that extra hands-on attention that they might they might otherwise be receiving. We're gonna have to find ways to do that uh, even more effectively coming out of the pandemic. I fully recognize that you're not an epidemiologist as I ask this question, but I'm curious what you think is when we start turning the corner and coming out the other side. I think this is a legitimate threat for the rest of the school year and maybe even into the summer for for certain populations. And I, I don't know exactly what the vaccine uh, kind of rollout will look like uh, across the country, much less even in Nebraska. But but I do sense that we got to have these other protocols in place. I think people often talk about education and special education, maybe even specifically as a school's issue or a, a parent and school's issue and not very frequently as a community issue. What we've learned through the pandemic, that the, the pandemic itself is a community issue, that behaviors at a community level impact our ability to uh, sustain services, both in schools and hospitals and other places that are that are critical. I'm really also an advocate for our students in, in uh, uh, juvenile justice and other places. It's been a challenge in those settings as well, and many of them have IEPs and, and has special needs. I do hope that in the long run, the school and community relationship is actually strengthened through this pandemic and we have this chance to actually once again kind of re revisit that and the fact that especially in public schools it's it means public because it's for the public good. Dr. Matt Bloomstead thank you for talking with me. Yeah it's great to be with you. Coming up fears African Americans will be erased from plans to make over an historic American city. We're going to give you hope by building a fancy building and we're going to hope that you leave. And why your next burger could come from the ocean? Welcome back to Matter of Fact. Every major city in America faces the same challenges, how to ease poverty and create upward mobility for communities of color. For the past two years, we've been following a billion dollar revitalization project in the heart of Louisville, Kentucky's black community the West End. Development is well underway, but the aftermath of the police killing of Breonna Taylor, coupled with the spread of COVID-19, has created a tension in the community. 
In our latest installment of Russell Rising, we head back to the community already skeptical about who will benefit from these changes and concerned that development is a code word for displacement. Oh, it's actually turning into a beautiful day, huh? <laughs> it is. When I first met Sadiqa Reynolds of Louisville's Urban League, she'd just begun the fight to reclaim the West End from years of blight and neglect. Black people deserve to prosper. We deserve to have an opportunity to, um, to live in the place where we have really suffered and sacrificed, to watch it grow and watch it become something better. Her neighborhood was once a thriving place full of black-owned businesses. But the city demolished the commercial strip, jobs disappeared, and hardship took its toll. One in every five properties here is abandoned, and unemployment and poverty rates are more than double the city average. But on this day, Sadiqa Reynolds had a vision for a major new development she hoped would bring her neighborhood back an indoor track and learning complex built with public and private funds on 24 acres of abandoned brownfields donated by the city. What do you see? I see so much hope and so much opportunity. I see these buildings, I see action, I see kids coming. You know, I just see so much hope for our future. Really excited about it. Take a walk with me. Okay. It's been two years, so where are we? The field is gone now. There's a huge building. Look at this place. I mean, the ceilings are huge. This is exciting, but this is nothing compared to what it will be. You will see a hydraulic track, a rock climbing wall. You'll see two multi-purpose rooms that we can use for education. We can have a 5,000 seat concert. If there's one overarching goal, it is really to bring hope, inspiration, and economic opportunity into that community. Construction is happening across the West End. There's a new YMCA, new commercial spaces, and 640 new mixed-income apartments where Louisville's largest public housing project once stood. You move into the bedroom, one bedroom unit, two closets. Roughly half of the units will be low cost, but the West End still has a massive shortage of affordable housing and a long list of other vexing problems. I've seen a building go up, but the crime is the same, the murder rate is the same, the unemployment is the same. Pam Haynes owns Sweet Peaches, a restaurant on the West End. Born and raised in the neighborhood, she's one of many residents skeptical of development. All they doing is bringing big fancy buildings. How can these people down here afford to, 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 to patronize these places? They don't have any money. Support for development has also been hurt by the controversy surrounding Breonna Taylor's death here in a botched home raid by police. And on top of all of this was COVID-19. It has been an exhausting summer. Ah, uh, this is not the world that I meant to bring my kids to. And, and, and this is not the way I refuse to leave this for them to clean up. I think we got a winner right here. Pam Haynes is helping out by serving free meals three days a week. Development, she fears, isn't addressing current needs. You're welcome, baby. These people. They need food on the table. Thank you, ma'am. They need their house repaired. 
They don't need a, uh, a trek facility. What kind of hope have we given to these people? We're gonna give you hope by building a fancy building. And we're gonna hope that you leave. We cannot have displacement because we will have gentrification if we do that. And also, we've got to build more affordable housing, Soledad. Really, really, really low rent housing and apartments. We, we've got to have more units in this city. The sports and learning complex is expected to generate $16 million in annual revenue, all in the hopes of attracting more business and more opportunity to the West End. What do you do? Do you say we're going to leave it, just leave it blank, leave that land there like it is? Or do you say we've got to come up with something that helps to generate authentically and organically economic development? Coming up, will families be forced to abandon their homes in the fight against climate change? The result of sea level rising, this bank is being eaten away. Or will cities find a way to wall off the ocean? Plus, tracking COVID-19, a phone notification you don't want to miss. It's hard to put a number on the cost of climate change, but NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Association, says, think of it this way. Each weather and climate event in the U.S. this year alone cost a billion dollars each. While South Carolina had a mild hurricane season, people there know it's not time to get complacent. With seas rising and storms growing stronger, both fueled by climate change, Charleston, the low-lying port city, is at risk for flooding, even when there's no hurricane. Well, now the Army Corps of Engineers has plans to protect the city from the ocean by building a wall eight miles long and 12 feet above sea level. But environmental advocates say the nearly $2 billion investment should be used to elevate and fortify existing homes. Our correspondent Jessica Gomez traveled to Charleston before the pandemic to see how people are planning for the next big storm. Charleston, South Carolina, a place developed around water, dependent on water, and now defending itself against water. Biology professor Philip Dustin. What's happening here as a result of sea level rising, this bank is being eaten away. There's actually dirt inside all of the walls because the foundation is sinking. Anna Zimmerman, her home flooded in 2015. Two years later, when Hurricane Irma hit, she knew it was time to leave. Like much of the Charleston area, it was built on filled marshland. The house just fills with water and it's dirty water and then it starts to bury everything and you just realize that you can't even save anything. While the city is spending millions on projects like fortifying its seawalls and improving drainage systems, it's wrestling with how to handle the thousands of people moving to Charleston every year. Critics say it hasn't pumped the brakes fast enough on new development. Fill and build communities that make the flooding problem worse for those around them. Some, like Margaret Peary, who lives with her special needs son, are taking matters into their own hands. Her home, the first in Charleston's iconic historic district, to be elevated six feet higher than it was before. We either had to sell the house or we had to elevate the house. Well, who's gonna buy the house? 
Who's going to buy a house that's under construction that had water in it? This is all original house. Original heart of pine structure, yeah. Builder and architect Buzz Morris says it was a complicated and costly process, about $400,000. But now dozens more projects like it are underway as flooded historic homes are losing value. People are looking at that from a money standpoint. They're saying, well, my house is going down 10, 20, 30 percent. Is it worth putting in the money to raise it. Money that many of those on Charleston's east side don't have, an area challenged by flooding and gentrification. Derek Milligan, his mom has lived here for 80 years, her neighbors not so lucky. They're being forced out because they don't have flood insurance and then they can't afford to get the renovations that's needed, so everybody's not as fortunate enough as some of the folks. Many left to the mercy of nonprofits, like the Sustainability Institute, which helps weatherproof homes for those who can't afford it, like bedridden Tom Jefferson, Charleston's vulnerable population most at risk. There's so many homeowners that, that need help and don't have the means to be able to afford the types of upgrades that they would need in order to fortify their homes and protect them against these weather events. Weather events, scientists say, that are here to stay. If we stopped emitting CO2 today, it would take over 100 years for the atmosphere to cleanse itself and get back to pre-industrial levels. It's like trying to turn a great big ship. You know, how do you slow an aircraft carrier and make a U-turn? Leaving a city racing against time, forced to adapt to the tides of change. In Charleston, South Carolina, for Matter of Fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Next. If you already had a form of COVID-19 protection in the palm of your hand, would you use it? With COVID-19 cases exploding, health officials in 15 states are turning to cell phone technology to slow the spread of the disease. Using Bluetooth on Apple and Android phones, state health departments can send a pop-up notification if you get close to someone who tested positive for COVID-19, the apps have to be enabled on your phone and their phone as well to work. So if you're curious if you have the app, well, look under settings on your phone. There you're gonna find exposure notifications. To turn that on, you have to log your location. Then you're gonna need to agree to terms set by your local health authority. If you're worried about privacy, the developers say no personal data about you or your phone can be shared through the app. Coming up, how the next big food trend could kelp save the planet. If you're wondering what to have for dinner tonight, how about a kelp burger? Mmm, <laughs> kelp as in seaweed. What some say could be the next big trend when it comes to meat substitutes. The sudden rise in popularity is twofold. First, Potential health benefits, the underwater crop is rich in vitamins and in minerals. And second, the impact on the environment. Kelp doesn't need fertilizer or pesticides to grow and also helps clean the carbon and nitrogen in the oceans. Currently, Maine is the center for kelp entrepreneurs in the U.S., many developing underwater farms along the northeast coast. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and we'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.